Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Hey, Mission Church, Pastor Tyler here. Welcome to Sunday Church again. Man, this is uh, starting to become a little too normal for me, but I'm going to press through. Uh, If you are checking us out for the very first time, we're starting a new series today. We're starting a new series titled, How Great Is Our God?, and it's a study in the book of Genesis. Now, I'm just gonna be honest with you. This could be a, uh, maybe the longest series we've ever done at Mission Church because our God is pretty great. He's the greatest. And so we're gonna start in the book of Genesis, but we might go to the book of Exodus. We might go to the book of Malachi. We might go to the book of Habakkuk. All right, just be ready that we're gonna um, hop around the Bible and show you how great our God is. Does that sound good? All right, awesome. So um, before I jump into my message, uh, I kind of want to give you an overview of the book of Genesis. If you're brand new to Christianity or maybe brand new to the Bible, uh, the Bible is 66 books put together uh, that basically point to one thing, points to the greatness of God and points to his um, redemption story of redeeming what we broke. Uh, it's an amazing thing, uh, th- uh, this thing we, we have called the Bible. And Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Uh, now, it's the first book of five books that we call the Law or the Pentateuch, Je- Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Not only that, Genesis uh, is the most referenced book in the New Testament. Over 200 times in the New Testament, Genesis referenced. More than any other book. It's amazing. Uh, Genesis, uh, another cool uh, thing about Genesis is that we don't know uh, uh, how long Adam and Eve were alive, but from the death of Adam, we know that the book of Genesis, from Genesis 3 through uh, chapter 50, when it finishes, it covers about 2,500 years of mankind's life. Genesis shows the origin of mankind, the origin of sin, the origin of creation, the origin of the nation of Israel. I mean, it shows us so many great things about our God and how he just loves his creation and how he wants to redeem his creation. And so I thought it would be amazing if we could actually go through the book of Genesis together. A couple of things I want to say is we're not going to cover every question in the book of Genesis. Some of you are going to say, ooh, we're going to talk about the, um, what I call the young earth and the old earth. No, I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, the young earth people think that the earth is six to 10,000 years old, and they're very dogmatic about it. The old earth people think it's 2 billion to 20 billion years old. And to be honest, none of us really know how old the earth is. So uh, sometimes we ask the wrong questions in Genesis. I'm not going to talk about when creation happened, but I'm going to talk about why creation happened, why God created us, why he created the heavens and the earth. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, another thing I want you to understand is the book of Genesis can be broken up in three sections. Genesis 1 and 2 would be called generation. Like, it's the birth of man. It's the birth of everything. 3 through 11 is what we call the degeneration. It's, it's the fall of man. It's what sin does to man. We're going to talk about that next week. Really just really how bad sin is and the choice of sin uh, and the faces of sin, if I could put it that way. I, I think it's going to be a special message. And then we're going to have another message uh, called the covenant. Uh, really, uh, the, the, the rest of Genesis, the third part, just shows the, the promise of God and his commitment to his people to redeem them. It's, it's an amazing thing. So that's a little bit of context for Genesis. You guys ready to get into the book? Okay, here we go. Genesis 1. Let's, 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 Genesis 1-1. Are you ready? Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop. Woo! No other God makes this claim. No other God says, I am the beginning and I am the end, that I created all things. All other gods have different claims, but they, none of them make this big of a claim. Now, let me just read you a, a Warren Wiersbe quote that I loved when I was studying. He said this, no scientist or historian can improve upon in the beginning God. This simple statement refutes the atheist who says there is no God, the agnostic who claims we cannot know God, the polytheistic who worships many gods, the pantheist who says that all nature is God, 
the materialist who claims that the matter is eternal and not created, and the fatalist who teaches that there is no divine plan uh, behind creation and history. He goes on to say this, and I love it. God's personality is seen in this chapter, oh, in chapter one. He speaks, he sees, he names, he blesses. The scientists may claim that matter just came into being, that life happened, and that all the complex forms of life gradually evolved from lower forms, but he cannot prove his claim. Woo! Can I double down on this? R.C. Sproul says it this way. Nothing can be more irrational than the idea that something comes from nothing. If you are somebody who's a seeker or maybe you're an atheist or agnostic, I think the reality is you have to come to a conclusion in your own life that you have faith in something. Uh, when Darwin had the theory of evolution 100 plus years ago, he said that science would eventually prove his theory. Well, 100 plus years later with all the fossilization records, still has not been proven. The theory is still a theory. So for me, as a believer, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And I find joy in that. I find peace in that. I love what the early church did in Acts 4. You'll see the way they pray. They say, oh, maker of heaven and earth. They pray to him. They pray to God knowing that he created all things. If he created all things, he can do the little things. Now, if you're somebody going, well, I just don't know. The Bible doesn't talk about enough things for me to believe it. I've heard people ask me these kind of questions. Well, I don't see dinosaurs in the Bible. Well, just to give you a heads up, I don't see dolphins either. The Bible is not a, a science book. It's not a book about all the animals. It's a book about how God created the, uh, this uh, thing called mankind and that he wanted mankind to be a part of his community. Not that he needed it, but he wanted to do it because he's God and he can do it. And so he invited us in this relational thing. It really is this book of glory to our God. It's, it's a book about showing the, the greatness of our God. Uh, and if I'm being honest, I think a lot of people, when they process Christianity, they process it very puddle deep. When they process their eternity, they process it very puddle deep. I'm gonna ask you to go to the depths. I'm gonna ask you to ask hard questions. Ask God hard questions. What I love about our God is that if our God can't handle hard questions, he's not much of a God. Well, if your own theory of being an atheist, if you can't answer your own hard questions, come on now, go on the journey and find out who really created the heavens and the earth. I've went on that journey and I really believe that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. Let's keep reading. It says this in verse two, the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. And God said that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. Woo, let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that the, just the first few chapters of Genesis shows us so much about your greatness Shows us so much about your sovereignty. Shows us so much about your character. Shows us so much of just the, the person of, of who you are and the deity that you are, Lord. You are the king of kings. Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way today. God, I pray that this is a message that is gonna be life-changing, that is gonna set people free to live the life that you designed them and knitted them and birthed them to live. Oh, Lord, we love you, we love you. And everybody said, amen. All right, let's keep going. Okay, so what does Genesis 1 show us about God? I'm gonna do two, two points today. They're long ones, so don't get too excited. They're pretty, pretty long. Uh, what does Genesis show us about our God? And the second point is, what does Genesis show us about mankind? That, that's what I want to answer today. So what does Genesis show us about our God? One thing that Genesis shows us is it shows us the Trinity. Shows us that God is not just a monotheistic God, just one God. There's actually three gods in one. It's the Trinity. Now let me uh, unpack that real quick. It shows God the Father. It shows that God created the earth. But it says that the Holy Spirit is hovering. Hovering. Now, that word hovering is only used a handful of times in the Bible, but it's the, the term that would be used for a bird that would be over its eggs, protecting it, waiting for it to hatch. 
Uh, so either protection or helping something hatch. So it's showing the person of the Holy Spirit saying, I am ready. I'm ready to help birth this thing. I'm ready to help do what I'm supposed to do. It's showing the person of the Holy Spirit, even with using that word hovering. And so the other question, so where's Jesus though? I, I don't see the name Jesus in this part of it, but I see the word of God saying, let there be light. And the word of God made light. Now, let's just be honest. Uh, how amazing would that be if I could just say, let there be light and light would go on? The re reality is that I have to walk over to the wall and flip a switch because there's power in the wall and it turns the light on. Let me show you uh, uh, why the word of God, when God goes, let there be light, it happened. Because the word of God was not some abstract thing. The word of God was an agent. The words he said was a person and his name was Jesus. I'll show you two verses I love. In the beginning is found twice in the Bible, two times, in Genesis and in John 1. It says this in John 1. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. Woo! Right there it's saying, hey, Genesis 1, Jesus was there. That the Trinity was there. I love what St. Augustine says. St. Augustine says the Trinity makes our mind explode. We can't fathom the Trinity. How does a finite mind process an infinite God? I love that I can't put my God in a box. I'm glad that I can't totally understand God. It says in the New Testament that there is a mystery to God. We can't figure out all of God. It's, it's this mystery. How, how are they three in one? How are they all operating so perfectly together? This is why our God is so great. Let me read you another verse. I wanna double down on it. Colossians 1, it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It shows Jesus' preeminence. It shows the Trinity working perfectly. I love what C.S. Lewis says about the Trinity. He says it's like this perfect dance. You see the Trinity's in this perfect community. You see them glorifying each other. If you ever get in a group of people, what happens is they're like seven, let's say you have like seven people in a group and one person gets complimented and then another person gets complimented, but then the other five don't get complimented. You start to feel insecure and you're like, what did they forget about me? What's so amazing about the Trinity is C.S. Lewis shows it in a sense that the Trinity is just so, they complement each other with perfect timing and perfect delivery. Holy Spirit, you're the best. No, Jesus, you're the best. No, God the Father, you're the best. And they're just, you don't know really who the head is in the sense because the reality is all of them are working perfectly together. It's a perfect dance. Nobody's fighting to get praised more. Nobody's fighting for uh, uh, authority. Nobody's fighting to, to, to say I'm the best. No, the Trinity is this perfect community. Oh, what an amazing thing the Trinity is. What an amazing thing about our God. Oh, how great is our God. Let's keep going. Uh, it shows us that God enjoys his creation. It shows that enjoyment is good, that pleasure is good. You look throughout Genesis 1, it says, oh, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. It's a creator watching himself create something and then enjoying it. He says it's very good. Imagine being a, a, a person who creates shoes. Well, once you make shoes, you have to have somebody inspect it. And back in the day, I remember getting shoes sometimes, and you'd pull out, and it's like inspected by Inspector 127, shoe approved. This is what I love about God. He created it, and he inspected it. And what he says, oh, it's so good. He enjoyed his creation. He did not worship his creation. He enjoyed his creation. And I believe what happens with us sometimes, and this is what we can learn even for ourselves, is that we can enjoy creation, but we should never worship creation. We can, pleasure is not a bad thing. Oh, enjoying food's a good thing. Enjoying your spouse is a good thing. Oh, those are, those are great things, but we should never worship those things. It shows us another thing about God. 
It shows us his power. Creation shows us his power. I love what Romans 119 says this. Uh, 120 and uh, 119. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Woo! So they have no excuse for not knowing God. What Romans 1 is saying this. When you look at the Grand Canyon, when you look at a sunset, when you look at Mount Everest, you look at Mount Rainier, you even look at Mount Diablo, you look at the green hills of Northern California, you go to the bay, you go look at Mount Monterey in the 17-mile drive, it says that creation points to a creator and it should cause us to worship. There is no excuse not to say there is a God. You cannot look at the 17-mile drive and say, wow, a bunch of stones hit each other and created this kind of beauty. Wow, chaos created order. It says that man is without excuse. God is the creator. It shows his power. Another thing it shows, it shows us his community. It shows a perfect community. One of the reasons why man was created is God just wanted to create people to be a part of his community. He literally says to the Holy Spirit and Jesus, let's create man in our image. Let's create man to enjoy what we enjoy. Let's create man to be in relationship with us. Oh, how great is God to think of us, to allow us to be a part of it. Another thing it shows us in the first few chapters of Genesis, it shows us his glory. Oh, everything should reflect his glory. Oh, creation reflects his glory. I should reflect his glory. We're created for his glory. Oh, our love, when we love him and we live for him, oh, it glorifies him. Our relationship should show glory to, the, uh, to our creator. It shows us his sovereignty. It shows us his holiness. It shows us his wrath. I love uh, this quote I came across. A God who is all love and all grace and all mercy, but no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. What I love about Genesis is you just see the character of God right away. Sin, oh, he hates sin. The enemy, I will destroy the enemy. You have, you have tried to destroy mankind. There will be justice for this. You see a, a God of justice. God does not wink at sin. God does not wink at the things of the enemy. He destroys the enemy. So many people always say, what is good and what is bad? The Bible's not about good and bad. It's about heaven and hell. It's about holy and unholy. It's about living for God or living for the world. These are the decisions we have to make. Oh, all that's in the first few chapters about our God. Now, let's transition this. What I would love to do today is, when you start to understand your creator, you start to understand why you were created. So many people, oh, so many people are dying to know. I'll use that, that, that type of statement. They're dying to know, why am I alive? Why, why, why do I feel this void? Why is it that I, I've tried everything and I still feel empty? Why is it that I, I, I think I'm great, but I know there's something else? What is it? It's that you know you're made for a bigger purpose. It knows that you know that your, your soul is craving for something, but what is it? And what I love in Genesis, it shows us why man was created. It shows us some of the purpose of man. It shows this. It says that uh, this, a few things in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 shows us. It shows us that we are made in his image. Woof. Can I read you a verse that's in Psalm 8? It's a powerful verse. It says this in Psalm. Let me find it for you real quick. Live stream. Psalm 8 through 9. Create us for a purpose. Listen to this. When I look at the night and sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them, yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge over everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims, the oceans, currents. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Oh, you can just hear the psalmist saying, 
God, you created me for a purpose. You, you allow me to, to steward the, the flocks, to steward the fish, to steward this world. How great is my God that you allowed me to even be a part of this. This, this is what we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that we are created for a purpose and on purpose. Let's keep going. Not only are we created uh, on purpose, but we are made to uh, work. We are made to work. We are created to work. Do you ever uh, notice this about our, our culture? That work is almost like a bad thing. Uh, and I would say most cultures uh, make work look like a bad thing. But it shows that in the garden that God charges Adam to work the garden. He literally says, go work, go take care of it, go tend to it. Now, there is this term that came out the last handful of years, I think maybe 10, 15 years old now, and it's called affluenza. Now, affluenza is basically somebody who has grown up in a very rich family. And so they grew up in a rich family, they never had to work, and so their mindset is, is that I don't have to work because I have money, and work is bad. And so they don't know how to operate in a normal economy or a normal culture because work seems like this curse to their life instead of blessing to their life. The affluenza mindset makes work look terrible. It makes lowly jobs look terrible. It makes um, labor jobs look terrible. It makes all jobs basically look terrible. And it makes it look like a curse. Work is not a curse. It shows in the garden that work is a blessing. And I would challenge you, the Bible shows that we need to renew our mind, that the reason why some of you uh, work may be a curse to you is because you don't know who the right boss is. Work gets really good when you start working for the right boss. We're supposed to work for him and we're supposed to work to advance his cause. In everything, wherever you work, you have a boss, but you have a ultimate boss and his name is Jesus. If you're somebody that looks at work as a cursing, as we go through this series, you're gonna realize that work is not a cursing, that it's a blessing. So many of us work for Friday. So many of us work for a retirement. So many of us work for ourselves and that's why it's so toxic. We're never supposed to work for Friday. We're never supposed to work for retirement. We're never supposed to work for ourselves. We're supposed to work for our creator. Oh, it's amazing when work is put in the right spot. Another thing it shows us is that we are made to govern and steward. We're not here to use and take. We're not here to just abuse. Oh, the, the people in our life, they should be better because they know us. The, the, the environment we live in, our environment should be better because of us. The, 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 the city should be better because of us. The school should be better because of us. This is our charge. This is our calling. And also we're made for a relationship. Oh, we're made for, for a relationship. Another one, we're made for community. You're, it says that it was not good for man to be alone. Not good for man to be alone. We're not built for isolation. Man, this quarantine, the extrovert in me, man, I, I miss you guys. I, there's something about even Zoom calls. I came across a study recently, if you've been Zooming or been FaceTiming. It, it, we're not built to FaceTime and Zoom. Uh, half of our body, uh, half, half our communication is body language. And it's exhausting to just use this part and talk. Part of our, our, our desire is just to be around people and to see them laugh and to see them nod their head. We're built for community. It's fulfilling. So let's look at this real quick. Genesis 2.15. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kind of camp on this verse for the next about 15 minutes, and then we'll, we'll be done. I, I promise. Probably. All right, here we go. <laughs> Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. There it is. It's supposed to work. It's a good thing. And take care of it. Woo! Take care of it. I'm here to submit to you that one of the reasons why mankind was created was to be a gardener. All of mankind, men and women, everybody, we were called to be gardeners. Hold on a second. What's, what are you trying to say, Tyler? Let, let me unpack this. God creates the garden. He puts Adam in the garden and says, work it and take care of it. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Now, man has 
and now out of the Garden of Eden, paradise has been lost. Jesus is here to, re, uh, to replace paradise and restore paradise, if I can put it that way. He's here to restore what we had lost. And he shares a parable in Mark 4. He says this in Mark 4. He says, uh, basically, it's this story about our hearts being soil and that the word of God is seed. And that when, he, uh, when we start to hear the word of God and the truth of God, that our heart will receive it and will start to produce fruit. It will start to produce life-giving things. Jesus came to give us an abundant life. So it starts to produce life-giving plant, if I go this way. We're always compared to botanical things in the Bible or garden-like things. You'll see this throughout Scripture everywhere. You'll see it in Psalm 1 that we're like a tree planted. Uh, you'll see it in the uh, way we, we describe the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, and patience, all nine of them. You'll see that. You'll see that those who sow many seeds will reap a great harvest. The verbiage over and over again throughout scripture is about harvest and gardening. So our soul, God compares to a harvest. Our soul is compared to a garden, soil. It's an amazing thing. And I want to I read you this verse to, to show you really what I'm trying to get, uh, get across. Mark 4 says this, now these are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word. So God says, you've heard the word. Oh, it's so good to hear the word, but it's not enough just to hear the word. You got to do this. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Oof. I think a lot of us, our cares have been misplaced. It says that those who care for the world, those who care for the riches, those who care for the wrong things, that when God wants to produce, a, if I could put it this way, a fruitful garden in your life, that you should be, if you could picture yourself as a garden, because that's one of the pictures most commonly used on our life, that he wants it to be fruitful. He wants it to be tended to. He wants it to be nurtured. He wants it to be like walking in somebody's backyard and going, whoo, look at those tomato plants. Whoo, look at those zucchinis. Whoo, look at those uh, huge uh, apple trees. How did you do this? Oh, I've cared and tended to it every single day. But what happens is, is if you don't care about the garden and you care about the world and you go out and work seven days a week and you think about the world all the time and somebody walks back and looks at the garden, aka if they go and actually open up your chest and look at your heart, they go, oof, this garden looks neglected. Man, there's no, there's no fruit. Oh, there's no vegetables. There's, there's no life back here. It just looks like it's been ravaged by deer, ravaged by uh, basically things that are taken away from it. And God's saying in this parable, he says, if you can't understand this parable, you won't understand any of the other parables. That if you don't understand how important it is to take care of your heart, to take care of your own soul, you'll miss it. He goes on to say, but these are the ones, oh, this is, this is what we desire for us. These are the ones who are, uh, who's sown a good ground, those who hear the word of God, accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. It's basically saying that if you actually allow the word of God and you look at it, this is the picture God's using the word of God as seed and our heart as soil, that you could become a person that flourishes. It says that in Psalm that those who are planted in the house of God will flourish and be fresh. Oh, how many people want to be fresh how many people want a fresh marriage? How many people want a fresh vision? How many want to walk up and just be excited for the day and flourish through the day? That doesn't happen from being planted in the world. It happens from being planted in the word and planted in his house. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at three points um, of what you're supposed to care for, what you're charged to care for, the things that basically you've been caring for the world. How's that been working out for you, if I could just be honest? But you go to the Bible and it'll show you three things you are actually called to care for that will fulfill your soul and bring life to you. And the book of Genesis shows us. This is the charge of Genesis. First thing you're supposed to care for, you ready for this? You're supposed to care for yourself. Oof. Now hear, hear me out. If somebody just took this little snippet of my message, you're called to care for yourself. You know what? 
forget everybody else. You've been taking care of your kids and your spouse and everything else. Stop that and just care for yourself. Now, that would be a terrible thing taken out of context. But what the Bible shows is it says, guard your heart above all else, for it affects everything you do. Guard the soil of your own life. What I'm saying is that you won't be able to care for others if you can't care for yourself. You won't be able to care for others if you won't allow God to care for your heart because he's the ultimate gardener. He's the ultimate heart changer. He's the ultimate one. This, I, I don't speak seeds in my life. I don't create my own seeds. It always comes from God. So we're gonna talk about you caring for yourself. Second thing we're gonna talk about, you're supposed to care for others. You'll see in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. He needs a helper. We're supposed to help each other. So another the thing we see is that we're supposed to care for each other. And last but not least, you'll see that we're called to, we're supposed to call to care for his house. Or we're called to care for his, his people, the church. Let's look at this first one. So God calls us to care for our, our own soul, our garden, if I could put it that way. Let me just uh, even double down on this real quick. What, look at the Lord's Prayer. How's the Lord's Prayer play out? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You've just declared, I can't create fruit. I can't create my own kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done, do this. And then what does he wanna say? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give me today my daily bread. You don't pray for other people's daily bread. You need to be nourished. You're taking care of, your, the Lord's prayer is taking care of your soul. Okay, give me today my daily bread, the things you know my soul needs. Oh, forgive me of, of my sins. We're, again, it's about you, as I forgive others. Do you know forgiveness, when you're forgiving others, it's still about you? They, they've done studies. When you don't forgive other people, you're the unhealthy one. You're the toxic one. You go throughout the Lord's prayer, all of it's talking about soul care. If I could put it this way, it's, it's, it's soil care, taking care of the soil of your heart. The Lord's prayer is all about taking care. Oh, it calibrates your heart. It, it cleans it out. It's tending to it. That should be a daily prayer in your life. All those things should be. Let me, uh, let me talk about something I think our, our culture is terrible at, that we see established in Genesis 1 and 2, that we are called to do. We are called to rest. One of the ways that I think that we need to care for ourselves and for us to actually be what we're supposed to do, we use this on our staff all the way, all the time. We rest well so we can run well. We believe that rest is what actually is one of the aces up our sleeves so we can run and build God's kingdom the way we're called to build it. Now let's look at rest real quick. Rest is this interesting thing that we are trying to find everywhere. Well, in the Old Testament, God creates the heavens and the earth and at the very end he says, it is finished and he rested. He said it's very good and then he rested. He was finished and he rested. Now, mankind, if you know the story uh, of the Bible, mankind sins and they uh, create restlessness, they create sin, and Jesus comes and he dies on the cross, and you know what he says? He says, it is finished. And all of Jesus' ministry, you'll hear these kind of things. He invites us to rest. He invites us to relax and find rest. They do studies on sleep, let me put it this way. They do studies on sleep. It's not the, quali it's not the quantity of your sleep, it's the quality of your sleep. So you can sleep 10 hours, but if you never get into what they call REM cycle, rapid eye movement, where you actually are in like real sleep, You'll wake up and feel like, did I even sleep last night? I kept on waking up. I never had that quality sleep. Well, you can go on vacation for two weeks. It's not the quantity of your vacation. It's the quality of rest on your vacation. Jesus invites you and me to rest. How great is our God that he gives us permission to rest? Let me put it this way. Imagine your parents told you to go clean your room. You started cleaning your room, but halfway through, you started playing video games. I remember doing that as, as a kid sometimes, and then, but I was nervous. I was like, okay, I gotta get back to cleaning. So I'd be, clean, I'd be thinking about cleaning, so my mind wasn't resting, and I was afraid that my parents would walk in any time and find that I hadn't finished yet because I didn't have permission to rest yet. I wasn't done with my tasks that I was charged to do. 
And then my parents would walk in and then I'd be done. It was never an enjoyable time for me when I would not finish what God called me to, uh, I would not finish what my parents told me to finish. Well, Jesus says, I finished it. I finished it. It's now an invitation for you to rest. And it's not just a rest on a Sunday Sabbath rest. Yes, that's one of them. But one of the things that Jesus does to take care of our souls, he invites us from the rest of having to prove it. I, 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 uh, I asked my wife for this permission. Something that I have to do with Rachel sometimes is on our day off, I have to tell her, Rachel, it's okay to rest. It's okay to put on Netflix and rest. It, it's okay. You don't, you don't have to work today. There's something in the busyness of our soul that thinks that rest is a bad thing. Rest is a good thing. Work is a good thing. It shows us that, that God not only uh, um, gives us permission to rest, but he gives us an invitation to rest. I love Matthew 11. He says, all you are weary and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you REM type of rest. You know all the other kind of rest he gives us? He gives us rest from having to prove ourselves. Rest to actually have to prove ourselves how great we are. I, I, I love the, the Rocky movies. I love the Rocky movies. In the first Rocky movie, you'll see Rocky Balboa tell Adrian, I just gotta go the distance. I just gotta go the distance. I, I, I don't have to win, I just wanna go the distance. And, and Adrian's like, Rocky, what, what's the big deal? Why do you have to go the distance? He's like, I gotta prove to everyone. I gotta prove to myself, I'm not a bum. I'm gonna prove to everyone, I'm not a bum. If I could be honest with you, I think all of us have something to, we hold on to to prove to people, I'm not a bum. I am good. I'm not bad. I'll show you. I'll, I'll, I'll get promoted, and I'll show you how great I am. And so we, we, we just work tirelessly to prove that we're good, but we can't work enough to show that we're good. Madonna, I mean, I could share so many different famous people, but Madonna said this, that she said that when she would come out with an album, she would feel great about herself. But time would pass by, and then she'd start to feel mediocre, and she'd have to make a new album to show she was great again. And she was in this cycle over and over again. I'm great, I'm mediocre, I'm great, I'm mediocre. Because she was earning her greatness. Oh, we were never called to earn it. It was, it was on the cross, it was paid for, it is finished. The, the things that we desire to hear is, you're good, you're pleasing, you're enjoyable. Oh, this is the, the way the father talks to the son. I'm gonna tell myself, you wanna, you wanna hear uh, just my own personal thing? Uh, we see this in Genesis 2. It says that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. That's literally how Genesis 2 finished this. Woof, what a, what a statement. So I've been working out. You may have been noticing, hey, Ty, you, you're losing some weight. You're looking good. Thank you, thank you, stop it. Come on now. Um, you're, making me, uh, you're making me blush a little bit. Um, uh, I have been working out. Uh, I'm, on a, I'm on a good momentum train. Uh, but uh, I was working out the other day in the backyard, and uh, I came back from a run. I was really sweaty, so I put on another shirt, a little tank top to get some sun outside because I lift outside and do all my little uh, um, weights out there. And I told Rachel after I got in, you know, like, well, you're getting sun. Like, why not take your shirt off, get some sun, Tyler? And I told Rachel, I said, I, I can't take my shirt off. Like, I, this is not shirt off ready. Like, I still feel shame over, like, I still, I still got some softness here and there. Like, I can't take my shirt off yet. And then I started studying for my message. Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. I couldn't take my shirt off without feeling some shame. And, and, and this, this is the, the fallenness of man is that if I'm being honest, if if we could use this term emotionally, if we could use this term relationally, if we all got naked together, Tyler, do not snippet that out. You snippet this out, you're, you're gonna get me in trouble. If we all got emotionally real and raw, just pure nakedness, here's how I feel about myself. Here's what's happened in my life. Here's what I've done. Here's what's been done to me. Here's what's going on. Here's what my marriage looks like. If we really got raw and showed everything about ourselves, would we all feel no shame? We feel shame. 
And what creation shows us is we were not built for shame. What creation shows us is that Jesus came to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. That I can look back at my past now. That I can look back at what I've done and what's been done to me. And I hear the Father say, you are good. Oh, I'm well pleased. You are my son and I love you. We all desire to hear and actually to feel those words that you are good. Oh, I enjoy you. Oh, you're never ever gonna get, get that feeling. You're never gonna feel that void from this world. It's actually when you actually understand what Jesus paid on the cross. I wanna, uh, I wanna finish here. I only got through one of my points, so we're gonna um, uh, touch this next week, part two, because I think the other two are so important about caring for each other and caring for the church. But I do wanna finish with this, that creation shows us something really powerful about just what salvation is. Creation shows us the power of, of what we got saved from. <sighs> a lot of people who don't really understand Christianity yet, I would submit this, that you don't want heaven yet because you don't know what hell is. Let me put it this way. To want the good news, you must understand the bad news. And the bad news is this, that the world is gonna offer you everything but still leave you wanting. The bad news is this, that without Jesus Christ, you are cursed to hell. You are cursed to live in eternity without Jesus and to literally suffer torment for the rest of your life. This is the reality of not saying yes to Jesus. Whew. I, I'm just the messenger. I'm not an editor. R.C. Sproul said it this way. I love how he said it. God just doesn't throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank, breathes into him the breath of life, and makes him alive. Woof! Adam was nothing, and God created something out of nothing, and he breathed into Adam. And then Adam and Eve chose sin and chose control, and then Jesus comes on the scene, and as Christians, we use this term, born again. But what Jesus is doing is he's redeeming what was lost in the garden. Before we know God, it says that we are dead, that we are asleep. And when Jesus came on the scene and the Holy Spirit uh, led him, raised him from the dead, and now has, lives in us, the reality is that when people come to know the Lord, it's the same thing that happened in the garden. <sighs> the breath of God takes nothing oh, and makes something wonderful. My prayer for you is that you don't know the Lord, that he wants to save you. And here's what I love about, oh, what I love about the gospel message. It's what I love about when people get saved. There's something about your eyes just being opened right now, about your heart being opened, saying, man, for some reason, today's my day. Today's the day I wanna say yes to Jesus because you're realizing I will never be fulfilled. I'll never, ever actually um, be the way that I was created until I say yes to Jesus. Oh, paradise was lost in Genesis. Fulfillment was lost in Genesis. It was broken. And Jesus comes back and says, I can create paradise in your soul again. I can create fulfillment in your soul again. I'll be born again so I can breathe this again on your life. If you want to say yes to Jesus today, I'm going to ask you to respond in three different ways, maybe four. Here's the first one. Type yes in the YouTube comment right next to us on our hand side. We're going to celebrate, have a pastor follow up with you. If you're with somebody, tell them, I want to say yes to Jesus today. I want to say yes to the maker of the heavens and the earth. I want to say yes to the one who created me and knitted me. If you are by yourself and you don't want to do those two things, call somebody and tell them, oh, and 
pray a prayer of asking Jesus into your heart and confessing with your mouth and believing that he is Lord. If you don't want to do those three, go on our website and click I said yes, and we'll have a pastor follow up with you. As we go through this series, it's, it's one of those ones when I started it, I didn't realize how thick of a series this is going to be. I believe that God is going to use this How Great Is Our God series in the book of Genesis to set a lot of people free from worldly mindsets, to set people free from uh, a way that they have been living life, but actually the way they're intended to live life. You're going to find that out. Thank you so much for checking it out today. Uh, I love you, Mission Church. Can't wait to see you next Sunday. Take care and be blessed. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.